Today's text comes from Exodus chapter 30 and 31. If you'll join me in God's word. Exodus chapters 30 and 31. With God's help, let's turn our hearts to hear his word. I'll begin by reading chapter 30. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a mounting of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer an an authorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year." With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives." The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die." They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. 
and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stands. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and aniaca and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. We have at last come to the end of the Lord's instructions for the tabernacle. If you've been following along, you might have felt yourself turned a little bit around at times as we have been walking through each of these different uh, pieces of, of furniture. The pattern that the Lord gives to Moses starts with the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and then you back out and you move into the holy place. You look at that larger room where there is the table for the showbread, there is the, the golden lampstand. From there, you zoom out and you look at the tabernacle itself, the actual tent of meeting. Well, then you go back down and you look at the outer court and you see the bronze altar that's there. Chapters 28 and 29 take us on a detour. They go to the priestly garments and look at all of those beautiful vestments. Today, we are back inside the holy place, that first larger room, and we're looking at a second altar, the altar of incense. Now, this is smaller than the bronze altar that is out in the outer court where the sacrifices were offered. This one is right at the entrance to the tent, uh, to the Holy of Holies, right next to the place of God's presence. And the Bible says here that it's a, it's a place Aaron would visit every morning and evening to burn this fragrant, uh, intoxicating incense, this wonderful aroma. You just can only imagine uh, how pungent it must have been as you hear of all of these spices that were used. What is the significance of this altar, the altar of incense? 
the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't say, at least directly, but there are other passages that speak of incense. If you were to fast forward to the very end of your Bible, uh, to Revelation, to chapter five in Revelation, John describes the Lamb of God, the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. And before the Lamb are four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down before the Lamb. And they are uh, holding the uh, harps and golden bowls full of incense. And this is what the Bible says, which are the prayers of the saints. You find the very same image a couple chapters later where an angel comes to stand at the altar before the lamb. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of, the, of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. And so incense in the scriptures is always associated with prayer. In Luke chapter one, at the dawn of the Messiah, just as the Lord Jesus is entering into the world, you find uh, the, the, the priest Zechariah chosen by Lot to go in to offer incense on this golden altar. And what happens at the very same time? The Bible says in Luke one, a multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So here you have a picture of prayer rising to God's ears just as incense rises to the nostrils. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to look at that and say, well, isn't that neat? Isn't that interesting? But why does this matter? Do you think that the Lord has something more for Israel something more for us than just intrigue as we look at this picture here. I wonder if you have ever found yourself praying and you have just felt like the heavens were brass. You know that expression, that you are there and you, you and your, the, 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 the littlest, the smallness of your faith are seeking to, to lift up your voice for, to God and to make your requests be known to him. And your prayers just don't seem to get off the ground. They don't seem to go anywhere, never seem to reach the ear of God. In one place, the psalmist cries, he says, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And there are reasons that the Lord will not hear our prayers. Uh, If we have unconfessed sin in in our lives, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened The Bible says, uh, God admonishes husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, in part so that our own prayers as men may not be hindered. But what is this text uh, depicting for us visually? Well, as we come through God's appointed means, he hears us. He hears the prayers of his people. Remember that these priests who come in to to offer incense on this golden altar, they have already done business with the Lord, as it were. They have already come and passed that brazen altar, 
sacrifice for sin has already been offered up. God's people have come into the place of his dwelling, openly declaring that their trust is not in themselves, that their hope of access to the Holy of Holies is not in their own performance. It's not even in the perfection of their prayers. It's in another. And so that fragrant aroma of spices and frankincense arises before the Lord, so do the prayers of his people. And even though the people of Israel wouldn't have been able to go into the holy place, they wouldn't have been able to see that altar of incense, they would have been able to smell the aroma. They would have been able to, to smell that intoxicating smell and be reminded I have an ear with the Lord. God hears me. Here is God's instituted means by which I can come. There is an altar that he has established and I can come and make sacrifice and he will hear my prayer. So this is a point of encouragement for the saints to pray, to lift up our burdens, our prayers, our petitions to the Lord. That's how David took it in Psalm 141. He said, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In the same way that that incense rises inescapably to to the nostrils, let my prayer be counted as incense. God knows our needs in the same way that that fragrant aroma wafts up to the place of his dwelling. We can be confident he will hear our prayers. The Bible says this is the confidence that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is the confidence we have toward God, if we come in the way that he has established, if we ask anything according to his revealed will, he will hear us. What encouragement there is for us there. So pray, church, pray. People of God, be a praying people. In verse 11, we come to the census tax. Now, what's a tax doing in the middle of all of these instructions? Uh, Verse 16 says that it was for the service of the tent of meeting. All of this glory, all of this beauty is going to be costly. Chapter 38 tells us that they received an enormous amount of silver and used it for casting the bases of the sanctuary and making hooks and overlaying uh, the capitals of those pillars in silver. We also see the Lord issuing severe warnings when it comes to taking a census here, how and when it should be taken. If you look at verse 12, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there there be no plague among them when you number them. We might think to ourselves, well, what's, what's the big deal here? Wouldn't it be good for a magistrate to know what the population of his people really is, to get a handle on the people that he's watching over? 
Well, as best as we can tell, there are really only two reasons for taking a census in the ancient world. One is what you see here. It is to levy some kind of tax. The other is indicated by the age of those that were counted, 20 years of age and upward. We know that it was only men who were 20 years of old and up that were eligible to go to war. And so if someone came around and they were knocking on your door and looking behind and trying to get a handle on how many people there were to be accounted for, there was usually some cause for concern on one level or another because on either of these two fronts, taxation was not to be imposed and wars were not to be undertaken apart from the direct command of God. These were a people beholden to the Lord. Their leaders were beholden to him. They were were to be listening to his voice. You remember David's error in 2 Samuel chapter 24. uh, David sets his sights on conquering some some land, this territory that's outside of uh, the bounds of the promised land. And so he undertook a census, something that even Joab uh, advised against. And if you know anything about Joab, you know that that's saying something. If Joab says, this isn't something you should do. David goes forward. He does it anyway. What happens? There's a plague, just as you see here in verse 12. So church, God is faithful to his word. Often when we say that, we think about his promises, his blessings. But God is faithful in both directions. He is faithful both in his promises and in his threats. He is faithful both in the blessings and the curses that attend his word. You'll notice here that that taking a census isn't something that's altogether forbidden. The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, and so it assumes that there are going to be times when a census needs to be taken, and so there's this ransom there. Now, why is the ransom there? Well, God gives them a ransom to underscore the seriousness of, of taking a census in the first place. It's meant um, to, to underscore the seriousness of going forward in this direction. The idea of giving a ransom isn't to, meant to suggest that you can somehow uh, purchase your salvation. In fact, the psalmist says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In this context, the, the idea is that as one of God's redeemed children, Even though you're not the one doing the counting, by allowing yourself to be counted, you're still participating. You're still involved here. And so he gives this solemn, symbolic gesture to press home just how serious this really is. Chapter 38 tells us that on this particular occasion, 603,550 men responded. 
with a half shekel price. The rich not paying more, the poor not paying less. There are no classes, there are no castes within Israel. Everyone holds the same status. Everyone has the same values, the same duties, and the same privileges before the Lord. Now, in, chat, in, in verse 17, we come to the last piece of furniture with the bronze basin. Uh, this is stationed between that sacrificial altar that's in the outer court and the entrance to the holy place. It's made from bronze mirrors, which are given by the women who minister at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And this basin serves a very important purpose for the priests. If their hands touch, touched any of the sacrifices that were brought into the tent, they had to be washed. The feet of the priests were constantly in need of washing. You may have noticed as we looked at the priestly garments that there's one thing that is conspicuously absent in the description of their garments as beautiful and as thorough as they are. As they are. There are no shoes. There's nothing on their feet. Probably this reflects the same kind of idea that you have in, in Exodus chapter 3 where uh, the Lord ta- tells Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now where do the, the priests find themselves perpetually? In the holy place. In the most holy place. In the place of God's dwelling where his presence has come to condescend. And so the hands and the feet of the priests would have constantly gotten dirty, constantly needed washing whenever they came near the altar, whenever they went in or out, whenever they prepared to offer a sacrifice, they needed to wash. Well, why? Well, it's because in this symbolic way, this is all portraying the need for God's people to be in a state of ceremonial cleanliness before the Lord, before they come into his presence. If they're to be considered acceptable to him, they must be ceremonially clean. Ceremonially clean. Church, God's concern here is not over infectious disease. The emphasis here is not over the spread of bacteria. That would have been a secondary benefit at best. Beloved, God is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. We are unholy. We are impure. We are unrighteous. And we need to be washed in order to come before him. Look at verse 20. You see the same refrain that we, have re- that we have seen repeated so many times in this examination, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. The holiness of God requires careful attention. Beloved, that hasn't changed. That has not changed. The holiness of God requires careful attention attention. It isn't optional. The priests have a basin there so that they may not die. 
There's an important parallel here in the arrangement of the pieces of furniture and Israel's own experience of their liberation coming out of the land of Egypt. Coming into the outer court, you have that bronze altar, the place where sacrifices are given. That's where atonement is made, where guilt is removed, where forgiveness is found. What happens next? You get to that place of washing. You get to the bronze basin. Hands and feet are washed. It's a place of ceremonial cleansing. Well, finally, you come to the tabernacle itself, to the place of God's presence and to communion with him. Well, in a similar way, the, the Israelites first find themselves outside of the camp in the, the land of Egypt. And what happens? In God's electing love, he chooses them for himself. He calls them to himself. He redeems them by way of a sacrifice. There's the spilling of blood at the, the, the very first Passover. The, lambs are spill, the, the, the blood of the lamb is spilled and it's put over the two doorposts and over the lentils of, of the home. They experience redemption through sacrifice. What comes next? Well, there's the crossing of the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul looks at this as a kind of ceremonial cleansing. He says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Yet, church, I want you to hear how he goes on. He's able to continue in saying, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he says that these things, Israel's experience in the wilderness, took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Now we're beginning to get to the root of things. Israel, they, they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. But church, was the washing that they needed, the washing that they most needed, external or was it Internal. Was the cleansing that they most needed outward or inward? You see what Paul's getting at. You can faithfully attend to every rite and ritual. You can have all kinds of religious experiences. You can be well acquainted with the, the externals of religion and still be just as vile and corrupt and impure as ever on the inside. Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, church, do you see the problem there? Do you see the problem with that text? 
None of us can read that. In light of our own sin, in light of what the scriptures teach us about the nature of man, about the corruption of the human heart, and think to ourselves, that's me. I've got clean hands. I've got a pure heart. We can't say that. But who is it that we approach today? Who is enthroned on that heavenly hill? It's the God of our salvation. It's the God who saves and cleanses guilty sinners. Those with dirty hands. Those with impure hearts. The God who washes our hands clean. The God who gives us new hearts. The one who fulfills the promise of the new covenant in Christ's blood. The gospel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. He promises to give us a new heart and to put a new spirit within us. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's our song for today. The laver also reminds us of our need for daily cleansing. There is a one-time washing that the priests received at the time of their consecration. It was something that was never to be uh, performed again. They were stripped of their garments. They were clothed anew. They were robed in holy garments, garments made for glory and for beauty. And that was a one-time washing. But then there was the ongoing daily need that they never got away from, represented by the water in the bronze laver. Exactly what you find in John chapter 13, uh, where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. If you remember that scene, uh, Jesus makes his way over to Simon Peter. Good old Simon Peter. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon, said, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Peter had already been made clean, completely clean through faith in Jesus Christ. He had bathed, but he still needed daily forgiveness, daily cleansing. Do you recognize that need in your own life, beloved? Do you find yourself fleeing to Christ on a daily basis, running to him, confessing your sin, letting him cleanse you every day, letting him wash you with the spilled blood of Jesus Christ? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 
With all of these plans laid, the, the, the Lord calls for anointing oil. In verse 22, together it was equivalent to about 16 pounds of spices, a whole gallon of olive oil, and all of the priests, the tent, the furnishings, everything was to be anointed that they may be most holy. In chapter 31, we turn the corner from the instructions for the tabernacle to the ones who are going to actually begin to build it. And I want to look at chapter 31, verses 1 to 11 with you. If you'll turn your attention there in your Bibles. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamech, of the tribe of Dan, And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons, for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. I mentioned last week, the first ones said in the scriptures to be filled with the Spirit are not priests. They're not prophets. They're not kings. They're handymen. They're artisans. They're craftsmen. They're laborers, both men and women, who unite head, heart, and hand in service to the Lord. God calls Bezalel and Aholiab, these two foremen, under whom there are many other men and women, to join together to do the work of the Lord. We've already seen the way that the people responded to the call for free will contributions. You remember how the Bible says that Moses faced an unusual problem and that the people had to be restrained from bringing anything more. It says that the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and the same kind of heart of enthusiasm continued to pervade the actual work. Chapter 35 piles up all of this language. It talks about how they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, all who were of a willing heart. It speaks of women whose heart stirred them, how they came to use their skill to spin goat's hair. I suspect that it's not an accident that it's the heart that comes first here. The heart is what is brought to our attention at the outset. Friends, you can have great intelligence. You can have skillful hands. But if your heart isn't set on the Lord, 
If your will isn't to please your master, if your motivation isn't to serve the Lord and to bring glory to him with everything that you do, the finest of your achievements are nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. These men's and women's hearts were inclined toward the Lord. They were eager to be of service to him. Now mark in your minds also the way the Lord says that he filled Bezalel with ability and intelligence. The Lord gifted these people with knowledge and all craftsmanship, which is not to say that they were somehow useless bumps on a log until the Spirit came along or that they didn't know how to lift a finger. But it was when the Spirit came that he gave them direction, purpose, zeal, and he empowered them with grace and wisdom, the kind of grace and wisdom they needed to use the gifts that were already present in their lives for a good and a holy purpose. There are a number of lessons that we can draw from this that have direct application to every one of us in this room today. First, brothers and sisters, notice that spiritual work cannot be confined to what we call vocational ministry. Spiritual work cannot be confined to what we call vocational ministry. I'll put this just as plainly as I can. You don't have to be a pastor to serve the Lord. In fact, many Christians and many pastors, in fact, have this entirely upside down in their thinking. In terms of how the work of the kingdom gets done. What is the purpose of a pastor? Ephesians chapter four describes at least one facet of that. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What is Paul saying there? It's very direct, isn't it? He says it's the responsibility of pastors to equip saints for the service of the Lord, for the work of the kingdom, for the building up of the body of Christ, and it's the responsibility of the saints to be about the work of the ministry. So spiritual work is for every saint, every brother and sister in the household of God. You might remember a story from the book of Samuel where uh, David and his men go down and they defeat the Amalekites and reclaim some of the spoils that had been plundered. Well, when they, they bring those back, there's a dispute that arises among the men who had, had gone down and in their minds, they were the ones that had done the dirty work. Uh, they had gone head to head with, with, with the foes and they didn't want to share the, the spoils with the ones who had stayed back to guard the baggage. I mean, that was for the wussies. What did David do? He said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the bag. They shall share alike. And it says that his statement became a kind of proverb and a rule from that day forward. 
David recognized what our passage demonstrates as well, that the the, the work of the kingdom, that spiritual work, uh, goes forth in a myriad of ways, through all kinds of different giftings and capabilities, and they're all needed. Here, the priests uh, would not have been able to serve without craftsmen. Without a tabernacle, there's no sacrificial system. Well, so too when it comes to the building up of the body of Christ or to making known the gospel in the world or to whatever else it may be that we have in view. Every believer has different grace gifts. So resist the urge to envy what God has given to others. Seek to use with all of your might what God has given to you. Exercise those gifts that the Lord has given you for his glory. Secondly, and the second is like the first, the Lord dignifies and delights in what we might consider to be routine, ordinary work when it's done for the glory of God. Now don't get me wrong, this particular project was nothing ordinary. But the nature of Bezalel and Aholiab's labors was not anything that anyone would have considered especially glamorous. It wasn't mysterious, it wasn't priestly. And yet the fact that they are what we might describe as lay persons doesn't take away from the fact that they're absolutely necessary to God's purposes on the, on the earth and that they have callings. They have callings of their own. The Lord says, I have called by name Bezalel to this work. And it doesn't look like priest's work. It looks like something else. Your work for the Lord, doesn't look like the work of someone sitting next to you. One author here says, his vestments may be overalls, a hard hat, and steel-toed boots, but his vocation is from God, and his work is to honor God through the employment of his God-given skills. That principle is something each of us can take and appropriate each one of us. As we think about our own giftings and callings, You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, how do I know what my giftings are? How do I know what my calling from God is? What has the Lord already put in front of you? What has God set right in front of your lap today? Do you have a spouse? Do you have a family to minister to? What giftings has the Spirit filled you with? What knowledge and intelligence? Maybe you would describe it in terms of craftsmanship. Do you have? How can you take those and direct those toward the purposes and the glory of God? What relationships are already in place in your life or can be pursued for the sake of the gospel? Is it possible that showing forth the fullness of the Spirit might include seeking to do your work out at the plant or in your cubicle uprightly with integrity, seeking to honor the Lord with your heart, your head, and your hands? 
Being filled with the Spirit, as you can see here, doesn't mean necessarily being overcome with some dramatic emotional experience. It doesn't mean operating on some higher plane of living. It doesn't mean undergoing a second work of God's grace. Here, in this context, it, it means applying knowledge to things like woodworking and metallurgy. It meant doing what would have been backbreaking work. For some, it would have included things like embroidery, technical know-how, things that would have been very tedious and tiresome at times, but it's all dignified and it's all valuable in the sight of God. Third, and continuing with the same theme, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. One of the things that that we see so clearly in this passage is that the Lord delights in beauty, in excellence, in order, in craftsmanship. That's part of being made in the image of God. In verse four, it instructs them to devise artistic designs. That seems to suggest that there is some measure of license that was given uh, to the craftsmen, even bearing in mind that they were to pay careful attention to the pattern that God had given them, that some license was given to be creative, to see just how beautiful and glorious they could make the sanctuary to be. Whatever might be the case, we know that shoddy work wasn't an option when it came to serving the Lord. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Do it for the glory of God. Now we come to the conclusion of the instructions for the tabernacle. And so it is appropriate that the Lord returns to this idea of Sabbath keeping. The stress leading up to this point has been on work. But the tabernacle is about worship. Worship happens on a weekly basis, corporately speaking, on the Sabbath. And so for this not to happen would have been a contradiction in terms. You won't notice it unless you're counting, but it has often been observed that the phrase the Lord said to Moses shows up seven times in chapters 25 to 31 in the instructions. The first six have to do with the the tabernacle and its furnishings. And then you get to the seventh and you find the Sabbath command. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but, on, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. 
And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. You see a connection here between the pattern of work and rest. First established at creation, now replicated in Israel's own worship. At creation, you see God's own creative act six days in a row, and then on the seventh day, he rests. He calls Adam and Eve to follow in the same way. Now, after man's rebellion, you have an echo of the very same thing, and it gives you the idea that God is not done with mankind. He is, in fact, restoring all things to himself. He calls this a covenant sign in verse 12, a sign that points both backward and forward. It points backward to that promise God made to sanctify his people, to call them out, to set them apart for himself. But it also points forward. The Sabbath also heralds good news that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever would unite their hearts by faith, for whoever would cease from their strivings and their labors, for whoever would come to Christ and find their rest in him. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we come this day once again to find our rest in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do come to rest in you and in your Son. Lord, to be relieved of our burdens and our sinful strivings. God, of all of our attempts to earn your favor through good works, through self-righteousness, Lord, we confess our sin. We also come to acknowledge our present need of the cleansing that only you are able to supply to us. Would you work in our hearts, O God? Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, would you fire our hearts with love and devotion for your name. Let our minds be fully given over in devotion to you. Bless the work of our hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.